flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Flatlander. I'm one of your hosts, Laura. And I'm Tana. Today, we are going to be discussing lead and non-lead ammunition. We'll talk about the science behind lead and its impacts to wildlife and people, why some hunters are voluntarily making the switch from lead to non-lead rounds, and then if you're interested, how you can get that done. We are so lucky today because we have a couple of really fun subject matter experts with us. These guys are the co-founders of the North American Non-Lead partnership which is a partnership to conserve wildlife and its hunting heritage Uh, so we have leland brown with us the non-lead hunting education coordinator for the oregon zoo and we have chris Parrish, president and ceo of the peregrine fund welcome gentlemen and thanks for being here thanks for having us thank you yeah we realize you both are are really busy so um, it means (laughs) a lot for you to take the time out of your days to be with us here this is a really important subject and one that we're excited to get into Um, so i think where we'll start is you both have really interesting backgrounds um, with your with your respective careers. So um, Leland, would you mind starting us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to be in the position you're in. Uh, sure. Um, so I grew up in northern New Hampshire and decided fairly early on that I didn't want to work in an office under fluorescent lights. So I went to school to become a biologist. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get a job on the Channel Islands in Southern California. So it's a Navy Island. And I was working out there doing uh, invasive species management. Um, so basically hunting for invasive species to protect um, a endangered native bird species that we were trying to recover. And that's kind of where I spent the next 10 years was doing different invasive species work. So I worked there for several years. I was doing feral pig work in Central California. And then I moved out to Hawaii for several years um, doing invasive species removal work out there, Um, mostly around kind of rare habitats, um, habitat or animals trying to protect those. So it wasn't kind of, um, wasn't willy nilly. It was just kind of like really focused on preserving certain species or, or certain habitats. Um, and in doing that, I used a lot of ammunition, um, because most of what I was doing was, uh, kind of lethal removal, either hunting, spotlighting, trapping, that sort of stuff, uh, and started using non-lead ammo doing that. Um, for the feral pig project I was working on. That was my intro. And then been using it ever since and been talking with hunters about it for the last decade um, as well about how to use it appropriately, how to be most effective with non-lead ammunition um, and why that's a benefit to us as a hunting community. Very cool. And and when did you start hunting? Uh, I started hunting actually after I graduated from college. My parents don't hunt, um, but my brother started when he was a teenager and taught me how to shoot when I was a teenager. And then I kind of finally went through that whole process officially once I I was out of school. So 2006, 2007, around there probably. Very cool. And you, it sounds like you've been using non-lead rounds for a decade or so. Yeah, a decade. Okay, cool. Yeah, personally and professionally. um, Right. Luckily, so I've had a lot of experience, most mostly professionally, because you tend to uh, have a lot more opportunities working professionally than you do, you know, drawing tags and things like that. Yeah, and so and then your position with the Oregon Zoo, so you do a hundred percent of your work is is non-lead hunting outreach is that yeah so i was working in hawaii and some of the folks um you know some of the folks we both know um uh, actually sent me the job position for the oregon zoo they were starting a non-lead program to work with the hunting community in oregon across the state encouraging the use of non-lead ammunition and i um threw my name in the hat the northwest was a place i'd always been interested in being um in part because of the variety of 
hunting opportunities and uh, was lucky enough to be hired to start the program and, and get it off the ground and rolling. And then that was 2015. Uh, I landed in, in Oregon in January 2015 and started the program. And then in 2018, working with Chris and, and some others, we co-founded the partnership. And Leland, I have to ask, you know, when I was um, reading up about you just a little bit, I was surprised to see that position housed within a zoo. I'm wondering if you could tell us, like, is that a common position to be held within some of our larger zoos or is that pretty cutting edge for the Oregon Zoo? Uh, it's pretty cutting edge. I mean, you don't necessarily associate zoos with talking about hunting. Um, we were lucky that there were some forward thinking folks at the Oregon Zoo who um, were really interested in how to get involved in improving kind of the landscape wide health uh, of wildlife. Um, and this is one of the ways they decided to do that. And in part, they've been you know, the other piece that was really kind of surprising is that they were really supportive of my approach, which was working in cooperation with the hunting community rather than pushing for regulation or legislation to change um, the laws around it. They really wanted to work together with those folks who choose ammunition to find the best way to move forward together. Right. Well, that's a, it's such an interesting approach, and I know we'll we'll talk a lot more about it later, but I think on behalf of the entire Flatlander team, I think uh, it's safe to say that we need to get a field trip scheduled and to come out and see your programs on the ground. That's that's our next big thing to add to the agenda. I'm yeah. sure we can work something out. <laughs> or bring you guys to us, yeah. Cause, yeah, and we'll get into the, some of the non-lead demonstrations, which are super cool. Uh, it'd be good to have you guys out here on the ground. So, Chris, t- you tell us about yourself. Chris Parrish, president and CEO of the Peregrine Fund. Uh, that still sounds so intimidating. Big <laughs> uh, <laughs> shot. Yeah, yeah, brand new, brand new. Well, um, I grew up in the southern San Joaquin Valley, and and people, you know, hear it in my my uh drawl as it as it is. Um, I grew up outside of Bakersfield and uh come from basically the the sharecroppers who moved out of Arkansas and Oklahoma and other places during the Dust Bowl. And I was a grandson of, of one of those families and uh, grew up out there and, uh, next to the, the old historic range of the Condor and actually worked on a cattle ranch as a kid, two summers in a row, eighth grade and ninth grade summers. I worked on this cattle ranch where we saw the Condor. So that was pre-1987 when the last birds were captured there. So my introduction to this whole lead thing came through my relationship with uh, hunting and angling uh, from a youngster all the way up and through my education and and background in biology and my own personal experiences and growing up in that area. And as I studied uh, more and more, well, as I, I found out you could be a wildlife biologist and uh, get paid for it. Not not well, but, you know, you make a living at it. And I thought, man, this is great. And I thought everybody who worked for a game agency shows you my ignorance of what they had to been a game warden. I didn't realize there were all these biologist positions. So I finished up my uh, schooling at Northern Arizona University and uh, was there on an athletic scholarship and studied forestry and wildlife management and got a job with Arizona Game and Fish. And uh, next thing you know, they detailed me to a reintroduction program for the California condor in the Grand Canyon ecoregion. And that really, I, I remember the controversy, both as a kid, as, you know, the endangered species and the ESA and all of the, all that went along with that there. And then I learned more through schooling. And then they, there was this job and they detailed me to that position with Game and Fish. And that was in 1997 and uh, just a couple of months after the first release. And then pretty soon after that, I get picked up by the Peregrine Fund to direct the program. And, oh, kind of came to full circle of really what my passion has come to be. And that is bridging the gap between the scientific and academic communities and, and the people of the land and uh, hunters and anglers, of course, uh, is, is where my, where my heart and soul is. So, um, 
as we developed a better understanding of the relationship between lead poisoning from uh, ammunition sources and scavenging wildlife like the condor, um, it, it just immediately merged those two worlds for me um, in, a, in a whole new way. And that's where my passion to, to not only do the science, do studies where we looked into fragmentation, I'm sure we'll get into all those details, but then most importantly, conveying that to, to uh, um, our hunting and, and angling, angling uh, brethren, if you will, and uh, define paths forward that are maybe less traditional than uh, the days of old and the old paradigm, but sharing information so that we as hunters and anglers are making more informed decisions. And, and that's been, yeah, my introduction to this whole, this whole issue. And so uh, just about a month ago, a little over a month ago, I transitioned into the uh, president and CEO of the Peregrine Fund. So very happy to be talking about non-lead and the non-lead partnership and something I'm more familiar with than my current role. <laughs> well, well, good. Well, we're happy to help. <laughs> Absolutely. Chris, I think your, uh, your passions perfectly align with our mission. You know, you mentioned that you like to try to bridge the gap between that scientific and academic community and the average person that is hungry for that information. And on the Flatlander podcast, we like to say that for our listeners, we feature the people, science and stories that make Kansas more than flyover country. So I'm really excited. This is going to be a great fit and we're glad you're here. Yeah, and, and no pressure, but it will make all of my dreams come true if even just one of our listeners walks away from this podcast with like the ideas and language to have a discussion about making the switch over Thanksgiving or Christmas. Because I think that's really our goal is to equip people with language, knowledge, so that they can have discussions. We don't want to jam things down people's throats. And I know you guys are, are right on board with that. So um, I think let's just dive right on in. Uh, Tana, is it fair to say... So in my experience in Kansas, having a discussion around non-lead, it mostly tends towards shotguns and, and lead shot. Is that in your experience too, Tana? Yeah, that's correct. Mostly in Kansas, we're focused on that shot. So um, Chris and Leland, in your, your all's outreach efforts, do you find that most people, when, when you start to talk about non-lead and lead, most of their knowledge is sort of based in the shotgun world and not being able to use lead when hunting migratory waterfowl? Because I think I feel like the, the rifle piece is is new to some folks. And so I wonder if we could just kind of jump in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of, of course it is, because we spend most of the 20th century talking about lead exposure and waterfowl. I mean, there was research happening throughout the early 20th century, through the 70s, through the 80s, before there was that final federal um, regulation change requiring the use of non-toxic, um, which we've got to be careful with. And I'll point out, which I always point out, non-toxic is a federal definition that requires testing um, to qualify. Non-lead is just shot that doesn't have lead in it. Um, it may not meet the non-toxic standard. Um, it may not have gone through that testing. Um, but yeah, most people, when we talk about non-lead um, in general, the first thing they think about is waterfowl because that's the things that they learn about. Um, the discussion around rifle ammunition and potential impacts for wildlife is fairly new science. Um, so it doesn't have the hundred years of kind of time to get into the public consciousness and into the discussions. Um, and so it's, it's not necessarily as well known um, or well understood how that pathway happens for exposure um, in wildlife. And Leland, is it safe to say that um, the, a lot of this push right now, especially with rifle ammunition is centered in our Western states? I, I think it started a lot in our Western states. Um, because, you know, a lot of that kind of initial research and discussion was happening there. Um, but we're, I think we're seeing it shift now and we're seeing like we just completed a series of workshops in the Northeast this past summer in Vermont and New York and Maine. Um, and then ended up down in Louisiana talking to some folks down there. So the conversation's happening everywhere now um, because it is happening across the landscape. It's not one place or another. It's it's kind of where we hunt, um, where that pathway happens. So, yeah, initially, I think that's true, but I think that's changed quite a bit over the last five or five or ten years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's the, the, if there is a fault, I mean, I mean, the way we approach this is the same way we approach science, right? I mean, when you're, when you're studying a small piece of a greater ecosystem, for example, um, you learn a lot more about the greater ecosystem. So while it has been centered mostly around, you know, endangered species and the condor specifically, I always like to remind people that, look, this isn't just about condors. We just know so much about this issue because we study condors like we do. We put transmitters on individual birds and monitor populations at an individual level. Therefore, we can we can really quantify the impact of anything on that entire population. And, and of course, then you get into the negative stigma of ESA related issues and lawsuits. And I think it kind of detracts from, from the importance of what we learned. The importance of what we learned is that this is a relationship between lead, preventable lead poisoning and scavenging wildlife and an opportunity to improve ecosystem health, whether it's to protect an endangered species or any species, we like to remind people that this is an opportunity. We've learned an awful lot and it pertains to all types of shooting of animals, not just hunting. If an animal is shot, whether it's, you know, whether it was me as a, as a ranching kid out there um, who happened to need to put down a, a cow because it was had a broken leg. Well, if I put that animal down with a lead-based bullet and I leave that food source out there for scavenging wildlife, there's a potential for exposure. So I think the, the broadening of the message is important because it's an opportunity to take action to prevent a very preventable type of, of morbidity and uh, something that contributes to morbidity and mortality. Now I sound like a scientist. We can prevent, <laughs> we can prevent wildlife from getting sick and dying. <laughs> See, it's much more comfortable for me to talk that way um, and, and more relatable. But anyway, um, that's why it's expanding to these different, uh, you know, when we talk about bird hunting and lead shot um, or we're talking about small game. Yeah, it just really broadens our understanding. And that's what we're interested in sharing with folks so that they, too, have their understanding broadened to the point where they can make more informed decisions. Yeah. And Chris, jumping off that real quickly, I mean, if we think about this opportunity, this isn't something new that um, and when we talk specifically about hunters, right, because we talk a lot about hunters and we do have to talk about those other potential sources such as, you know, kind of like Chris was talking about putting animals down on the range and things like that. Um, But for hunters specifically, this is an opportunity to continue our traditions. It's not to create a new one. You know, the tradition of conservation and stewardship within hunting um, isn't a new thing. You know, that was been, it's been well established also for about a hundred years, right. Um, since kind of the end of market hunting and this transition into a more um, kind of regulated type of hunting that we see now with all the tags and everything. Um, so what we're talking about is an opportunity for the hunting community and other communities that can create this potential exposure source to keep doing what we have been doing, but use some of these new technologies and new information to inform what we do. Um, So it's not about kind of changing our values. I don't think we're changing our values at all. What we're doing is continuing that value of stewardship and care for the landscape and the habitat and the wildlife um, through this discussion. Absolutely. And well, and you both mentioned the spreading of some of these ideas and some of these partnerships uh, throughout the U.S. Um, And I know that recently the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, or MAFWA, um, recently signed on as a supporting partner of that North American non-lead partnership. Yep. And we're real excited to have them. Um, And, you know, we'll we're going to keep working with them and with individual states and with individual hunting groups and, um, you know, whatever whatever organizations we really are focused on working with agencies that manage wildlife and hunters and landowners that um, deal with you know wildlife and habitats at the moment um, that's been our focus so can you guys break down for us the 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 very simple exposure pathway from lead bullet to a condor or an eagle how does it get from a to b what's happening there can you can you break that down for us yeah we can do that. I'll try to keep it simple because I get really nerdy about the kind of 
ballistic performance of stuff. So if I start getting into tangents, tell me to, you know, refocus. Knock it off. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, you said basics, it, Brown, so I didn't have to. So there you go. Well, you know, you got to know yourself a little bit. Yes, um, sir. <laughs> uh, I mean, the basic thing is uh, bullets lose weight. You know, we've known that for a long time. That's why we have things like partitions and bonded bullets and all these things in order to improve terminal performance. What happens when the bullet strikes an animal? Um, we've known that they lost weight for a very long time. What we have more clearly established now is how that weight loss happens. And it seems to be happening as these very small pieces of lead stripping from the front of the bullet as it expands and passes through the animal. So it's leaving, you know, tens to hundreds of small pieces of lead behind along that wound track. Now, for most of us, we shoot an animal and recover it. We're going to gut it and leave that gut pile, uh, you know, all those internal organs in the field. Um, often that's the lungs and whatever's been shot because it's all damaged. That's also what's going to carry most of those small pieces of fragments that are the weight loss of that bullet. Um, and that's a food source. And so basically we, what we've done is now created a bait pile that has all these small pieces of lead in it that scavengers will come in and feed on. And those scavengers can be anything from kind of like the California condor, which was kind of the canary in the coal mine where we first really started learning about this exposure pathway um, to ball or golden eagles or hawks or, you know, any other um, turkey vultures, things like that. Um, and so they're just, going and feeding on these great food sources that we leave in the field, um, but picking up these small fragments of lead at the same time. And then given their digestive systems and how acidic they are, usually break down that lead and can be getting lead exposed um, from that. So I tried to keep that as basic. Hopefully that was good. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. And, and so, and then the way that researchers figured out it was lead from ammunition that was causing this poisoning. Can you walk us through that? Chris, yeah. why, why don't you jump on that one? I think you were. You bet. You bet. Yeah. So, so for us, it was, we saw a seasonal increase in lead exposure measured in blood lead because we'd trapped these birds multiple times a year. And, and anytime we trapped them, whether it was to change a transmitter or to just do a health check or to change a number tag, we would take a blood sample. So in the beginning, in the early 2000s, it wasn't until 2002 that we saw any seasonality of lead exposure. And that seasonality of exposure coincided with the birds transitioning to using the Kaibab Plateau. And there's two major hunting seasons on the Kaibab Plateau, um, two two-week seasons, and it's the early hunt and the late hunt. And anybody who deer hunts in the United States usually knows about the story about the Kaibab deer. It's a highly coveted tag, but that's not the point here. The point is, is that we saw an increase in lead exposure that peaked around those hunting seasons, and we thought, well, it looks like it's tied to the hunting season, and we're looking at GPS um, telemetry data, which is basically a point on a map where that bird was every hour of the day. And then we catch the bird and we test its blood lead level and see that it's peaked. And we thought, well, how, where, where could this be coming from? So it wasn't just an assumption at first, we were just asking questions. What if it's in the soil? and the water in that specific area. So we looked at things like soil lead levels and water lead levels, and then said, well, the other thing that they can be exposed to is what they're eating. And so we know they're eating a, a pretty large amount of gut piles. They're gonna be consuming probably some deer that are lost to wounding loss that aren't recovered. Um, but really it wasn't, the, the wounding loss theory wasn't covering or wasn't explaining why 80% of the population showed really, really high levels of lead. And then we just asked the basic question, how much lead can there possibly be left in a gut pile from a single shot, from a center fired rifle in calibers from 243 up into the Magnums. And that's when we did the Peregrine Fund. We did our first um, study where we went up to Wyoming and shot 30 some deer in two separate studies. And we x-rayed the animals whole. And then we, gutted them, x-rayed the gut piles, and then all the way down to the packaged meat. 
that is what blew our minds. We, we could not believe that in some cases from a single shot where the bullet retained 68% of its mass, it yielded up to 400 fragments. Now that's the high side. Some of them don't yield uh, as many fragments, but there's a full range depending on how these bullets are constructed. And, and like Leland said earlier, it's well known about weight retention, but what we never really knew about is where is it lost? And it's obviously not lost. It's somewhere. And in a lot of cases, it's in that gut pile. There were two deer that we shot in the first study that didn't have lead in the gut pile. That's because I shot them in the head and the neck because I also wanted to see fragmentation there. So when you think about an animal that's lost and a vulture or another scavenging, even some predators that scavenge like golden eagles, they're going to enter a carcass through existing orifices. And if it has a bullet entry and exit wound, they're going to enter there too. And if the bullet fragments to whatever extent that it does, it's going to have increased probability of being uh, consumed because it's in these, these holes in the carcass. So that was really the eye opener for us. And then of course, other studies followed and looked all the way down to the, the isotopic level of lead and saw that the lead that these birds had in their systems, whether it be metallic lead in their gut or lead residues in their blood or tissues, they were able to isotopically analyze this lead and see that it came from a recycled source, which in and of itself doesn't say it's bullets, but it says it's some kind of a man-made or man-combined uh, human you know, uh, product. And so that's when we started really um, honing in on the data that would help test that hypothesis. And of course, we found that, that it was consistent from 2003 on through till today. And we're approaching our lead testing season here at the end of the month. Um, and we see a, a spike in exposure. And so... Um, I guess the, the next step is what did we do with all that information, but I'll make sure that we've answered all the questions about the pathway first. Yeah. I think it's important to note. I mean, that's been replicated with a lot of different species now, right? So, you know, you've had that replicated, that seasonal spike has been replicated with eagles. It's been replicated with ravens. Um, you know, it's been replicated with uh, turkey vultures. So we've seen consistently that, with different species, you're seeing the same kind of seasonal spikes happening. You're seeing the same um, shifts in rates of exposure that are associated with hunting seasons. There's even been some great studies that have looked at, uh, you know, the number of carcasses on the ground and the average lead level in a population of ravens, and then the changes in the isotope rates across that season or across higher levels of lead exposure that change to match that recycled um, lead fingerprint. Um, so there's been a lot of work that's been done over the last, you know, 15 years to kind of replicate all this and make sure that it's not um, kind of a one-off with one species. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, and Chris, I understand your focus is um, on our feathered friends, but has there been research to monitor the effects of this in mammal populations as well, like some of our mammalian scavengers? Yeah, and more and more studies um, um, as time goes on. And uh, I, there was a recent update. Brown, do you recall the uh, what we heard at the Raptor Research? I mean, yeah, it was brown bears. Brown bears, yeah. Finland or one of those Scandinavian um, countries. And I'll have to say I'm blanking on it. It's probably in my notes somewhere, um, but um, some research um, showing that there is some exposure happening in some of these um, mammalian kind of predator scavenger species. Um, one of the challenges I think with mammals is that they're more challenged. They're more difficult to study um, because you know, they're not flying across the sky. You can't necessarily catch a number of them. Repeatedly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Repeatedly as you can with, uh, with birds. Um, and you know, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have as easy a time going from, you know, gut pile to gut pile or carcass to carcass as a bird does. Cause they can just, Hey, there's one on the other side of this canyon. I'll just fly right over there. Yeah. Whereas a coyote or a bear has to cross the canyon and, you know, find a path and well, do all that. And I think this is a good place to inject the, you know, to take it out of the, the scientific realm for a moment. I mean, we know, I, I usually ask people this when we're talking in person with hunters, say, look, knowing what you know about lead and consumption of lead, 
in no matter what the species is, have we ever had the notion that any of it was a good thing? I mean, it's not that it's, you know, it's not that it's all as bad as it is in one species or another, but the bottom line is if we know that there's a potential for exposure uh, of wildlife to lead, most people's first common response, if you're not talking in depth about the, the science is to say, well, I had no idea that that was even a possibility. And many hunters that we talk to say, well, of course, I don't want to, if I can avoid it, then why, why wouldn't I? Um, but, but, but that notion takes follow-up that notion and that understanding, you know, I know a lot of things and, and Leland's cringing right now because he knows what I'm going to say that I know the equation for weighing 284 pounds. That doesn't mean I, I fix it because I know the equation. I still have to change my practices and change habits and, and the change in habits and practices is the hard part, not understanding that it's that lead poisoning is, is a potential, you know, bad thing for critters to eat. Everybody could, could accept that, but will it be enough of a consideration to change our habits? That's key, I think. And it's not the science part, you know, it's not, well, how much is too much? I, I, yeah, we, we don't know in a lot of cases because these are wild animals and we're not doing laboratory studies, although there have been laboratory studies done on some species. Just a little aside there. Well, Chris, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners what some of those sublethal effects might be or might look like. Well, I mean... I'm going to, I'm going to turn this one to Brown because he usually gives this part of the, the presentation about most of what we know about lead is through the studies in humans. Um, but it is a, a lot of it is transferable to other vertebrate species. So if that one's fresh in mind, Leland, I'll let you take that one. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, like you said, I mean, we know the most about lead exposure in humans because we've been documenting it for thousands of years. I mean, the, I think the first recorded writings about, lead exposure symptoms were from the Greeks. I mean, we're talking several thousand years ago at this point. Um, so it's kind of a unique one where we actually have more information in humans than we do on wildlife, but the, it's pretty similar. I think across, like Chris said, across all vertebrate species, there's, um, there's a couple of real basic things like Sublethal effects is kind of anemia. It impacts the creation of enzymes that help with hemoglobin, which carry oxygen in the blood, which, you know, if you don't have that creates anemia, um, it can create kind of neurological effects. So, um, you know, when there used to be lead paint, there used to be something called painter's wrist where people would lose control of the kind of their, their hands and extremities and they would droop see the same thing with with birds um, at higher levels but you're going to see kind of reduced reaction times things like that um, with people it's decreased iq um, hard to give an iq test to animals i don't think they've figured that one out yet <laughs> um, maybe some parrots or something but um but they have started looking at changes in behavior. There's some really interesting work that's happened using GPS um, tags that can actually track really fine scale movement rates and actually saw a change in how um, golden eagles were moving at what we would consider fairly low levels of exposure. And of course, if they're not moving as far as fast or they're not flying the same way, then that changes survival. Um, so basically a lot of it comes down to kind of neurological impacts that change behavior that can potentially impact survival across long-term. And then there's some other things like um, maybe increased risk of uh, miscarriage um, for mammals or issues with laying eggs for um for birds and things like that. Although it's hard to get into all these sublethal effects because again, we're talking about wild animals. It's really hard to track all those really fine scale details in a wild animal. Um, but yeah, that, uh, I think that's most of it. I mean, that's, it's mostly comes down to the neurological stuff and changes in behavior um, for the most part, which, and then kind of decreasing likelihood of survival across a longer time scale. Yeah, and I think is that where the the YouTube videos of the eagles having seizures? Yeah, and th those are pretty high levels of exposure, right? I mean, that's at the point where you know they're not able to move anymore um, because it's 
degraded kind of that neurological system enough where nerve signals aren't even making it out there anymore. But even at lower levels than that, um, you know, that, that's a point of like that animal's probably dying of lead poisoning right there. Um, but at those sublethal where they're still flying around and maybe attempting to hunt, but they're just a little slower. So their prey is more likely to get away or their vision's a little off. So they're more likely to hit something. Um, there's some questions about how all those impacts will happen. And again, it's something we don't necessarily know all the answers to, but like Chris said before, we know that eating it is kind of not good for, for any vertebrate species we haven't found any species on earth yet that uses lead as part of its um kind of development or or as an essential nutrient so if we have ways that are effective to avoid it then maybe it's worth us all taking a look at it and seeing you know how how those will work for us long term Leland, I was just curious, you know, I like the metaphor a lot that you and Chris both used as far as like having the components of equation of an equation. So like we have the science component, we have the hunter component of like wanting to be an ethical hunter, not wanting to cause undue harm to the wildlife we're hunting or, you know, the surrounding area. What are the, what do you think the barriers are then to people? Um, if we have all these components of this equation, that seems like the answer may be clear. What barriers exist, real or perceived? when making the shift to non-lead ammunition? (laughs) I can tell you what my barriers were when I first got introduced to it. I was like, my first one was, what the hell is non-lead ammunition? Um, Why would I use that? I've got something that works really well. Where do I find it? You know, is it going to work in my firearm? How expensive is it? Um, Is this real? Is this something I actually have to worry about? I mean, all these things were all things when I was told about it and I was working on that feral pig project and basically told, hey, you want to go shoot pigs, which I really wanted to do. Um, you have to use non-lead ammo. And my response was, why? Um, and then we went through all this stuff, which is basically what I try to do with folks now is is go back to where I was then and go through the whole thing with with people who are in that same place. Yeah. And I think that the first, the first answer of, of what is the barrier, the barrier is what I was alluding to earlier about change. You know um, we, we don't like to change, you know, and, and people kind of laugh when we're talking about the logic and the science of this issue. And especially if someone doesn't hunt, they say, well, it's just ridiculous. I mean, why wouldn't you change? And I was like, what kind of car do you drive? What kind of pants do you wear? What kind of foods do you like to eat? These are all habits. And, and sometimes these habits are so ingrained that they're passed down from generation to generation. And of course, I'm not talking about shooting lead. We mostly shoot lead because that's what we've mostly always shot. Um, but for some people, it's real brand specific. Like, you know, try to get a, a rancher who's driven Fords all their lives. Try to give them a Chevy. <laughs> you know, it really is that simple. Um, it is that simple. And what we're talking about is, is change. And yes, information can influence change, but there have been studies on human behavior that go back to the 60s that that demonstrate that just knowing is not enough. You have to address those other barriers and price. Well, um, if you're comparing the least expensive lead ammunition and premium non-lead or lead ammunition, it doesn't matter if it's lead or non-lead, if it's premium, it's going to be quite a bit more expensive. Um, so if you're comparing like products in high quality ammunition, lead and non-lead, there is no difference in price. And of course, in today's world, finding ammunition is the biggest limitation, right? I mean, if I could find anything that was uh, uh, not terribly expensive, I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, not mentioning names for, for respect for brands, but the old green and yellow boxes, um, I've seen some of that stuff three times as expensive as it was when I was a kid. And that wasn't long ago um, because of the availability is a problem. So um, there are a lot of factors that influence um, people's uh, uh, willingness or eagerness to change. And I think one of the biggest failings that we have as, as conservation scientists is that unfortunately we were taught to let our science do the talking. Well, 
that's great if you're a scientist and peer-reviewed publications is your currency, but the masses are not making decisions based on peer-reviewed publications. And some of the people and the organizations and, and the movements that have the greatest impact on what people buy is because they effectively market their product. And I think in conservation, we have to get a lot better at marketing our product. And our product is information and science and what you do with it can make it conservation. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> that was very well said. No. <laughs> I, I do want to ask though, so the price component, because that comes up a lot. And you mentioned, you know, if you're going to compare the cost of copper rounds, you got to compare them to the high performance lead. But also, and I, I've heard you guys mention this on other podcasts, like if you're hunting with these rounds, that's one round and maybe like a handful that you use to sight in your rifle. Great point. Yeah. And, and Leland, I'm surprised he didn't beat me to this, but um, uh, he's usually the one to say this, but I'll steal his thunder. You know, we are just talking about ammunition that we are using to put animals down or shoot them or however you want to say it. And their remains become a part of the food chain. A lot of people misconstrue what we're about here at the partnership. And they say, well, you know, I can't switch everything. You know, I'm not going to switch at the range. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the very few numbers of rounds we use to put animals down whose remains are going to be left available to scavenging wildlife. And that is for, well, in some States and I'm not, well, I guess I'm going to be moving to Idaho. So it's going to be a little different, but in Arizona, it's pretty hard to draw a tag for a coveted hunt like the Kaibab, you know, you might be 10 years before you finally draw that tag. So um, if I compare or, or if I analyze the use of ammunition on my Kaibab deer tags, I still have the same box I started with 25 years ago. <laughs> so it's not a lot of ammunition for that. But what if I'm a, um, a, a varmint hunter? What if I'm shooting ground squirrels? And I know Leland will cover this one better than I will. So, yeah. What about small game? Yeah. And that's really, I think, where priced, like you think about ground squirrel shooting, say, in Oregon, in eastern Oregon on those alfalfa pivots up in the high desert. I mean, people are shooting a lot of ammunition there. And, um, you know, it, it can it can potentially be more expensive, but it depends partly on what caliber you're shooting too. Um, you know, I saw a 17 HMR ammo the other day where the non-lead stuff was less expensive. You bought me some, didn't you? still in stock. And I was like, well, I don't know what, like these, this ammo works fantastic and people aren't buying it. And part of that I think is just partially because, you know, they don't really know, how it works um they're not so sure they're used to buying the other stuff um they know that one shoots well in their gun so you know they don't want to recite in they're already using you know the vmax versus the ntx or something um that's where the demos come in that's where and that's where yeah that's where the kind of going to the range and working with folks and letting them test ammo and showing them exactly how it works and ballistic gel and in water and, and all these pieces is really important to show, you know, exactly what one, let's have a good understanding of what terminal performance actually is, whether it's lead or non-lead ammo. I think there's kind of a, a little bit of a lack in the hunting community sometimes around what actually kills an animal right um it's i'll just jump to the chase it's blood loss i mean that's how we kill animals is we make them bleed enough that they die um unless you hit the brain or the spine and that can happen with any type of ammo the question is which one also lives up to the standards that we've set for ourselves for stewardship and and we were talking earlier and I kept thinking about something I've said this in, in other places as well, but you, know, you go through a hunter ed class and it talks about, you know, knowing your target and what is beyond. And for me, this is the key concept for my decision to use non-lead ammunition, because if I'm going to be that careful for my shot to make sure that's effective on that animal I'm targeting, and this is a decision that a lot of hunters are making, right? That's one of the things that is just so vital is they don't want to wound an animal. Um, my knowing my target and what's beyond, so I don't accidentally impact anything else. Now I need to change that with this new information. It's not just what's beyond physically. It's also what's beyond in time, what's happening after I leave the field, after I take what I need from that animal and leave the rest. 
that exposure that happens to other species is still my responsibility because I own that bullet, whether it's traveling through the air or whether it's the remains of it sitting in that gut pile or in those organs that are then consumed. That's mine. I own it. And so that continuation across this new frame of reference, I think, is is really important for us as a community. Yeah. And that's where the one shot, one kill. I love that. The simplicity of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wondered if we could go back. So Leland, a while back, you'd mentioned, I think it was you, um, the wound channel and the gut pile. And that when you're field dressing an animal, you're going to cut around that wound channel and leave the remains behind. Can you talk about lead fragments? Well, first of all, how far are they traveling from that wound channel? And is it getting into meat that humans are consuming? Well, I mean, the short answer is is yes, it's it can travel much further than I ever expected before I started seeing these research projects. I mean, as far as like 15 to 18 inches from perpendicular from the, the track of the bullet. Um, so if you shoot something behind the shoulder, there's potential, depending on what you hit, if you hit bone or not, it's going to change. There's potential of having fragments make it as far as... Um, up into the back strap um, or, you know, back down by the hips. Um, And that's documented now with research projects. Yeah. When we did, we did our study, we, we actually used an aluminum arrow shaft through the wound channel so that we could align the x-ray machine up perpendicular to the, the path of the bullets travel. So we could quantify that. And I think, yeah, we saw up to 15 inches. Um, and that's the extreme, you know, it's not the average of course, but, um, uh, if, if like Leland said, you hit the, the humerus when, when that bullet impacts, it's going to have a different effect on that bullet. And so, um, one of the ways we demonstrate that in the field at the ballistics demos that we do in the, the field outings is using ballistics gel and that's in the absence of any bone or hide and you can see the full radius of fragmentation and the wound channels and it's really eye-opening and i'd encourage people to go on to the huntingwithnonlead.org um one of our founding partners, Institute for Wildlife Studies, has this website where they have a lot of those scientific um, studies there. And yeah, just flip through and look at the pictures. The pictures speak a thousand words. Yeah, we'll definitely be sure to drop that link in the show notes, Chris. Yeah, and then the, the work that Chris did, and they process those animals as well, right? I mean, you sent each of those deer to a different processor to yeah. avoid any um, any issues with one processor being sloppy and still had a, a fair amount of it was like 30% of the ground meat came back with at least some sort of metallic fragment in it. Yeah. Yeah. Been, 32%. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been consistent in other work that's been done as well, where they've done some sampling of, of packets. And even as far as getting, you know, packets back from agency staff who were processing their own because they're like, well, no, we do a much better job because we're processing our own. And they still have 18% of the packets they sampled had some, some lead fragments there. So the potential to have it get into your meals is there. I don't know if I want to go so far as to say, you know, people are hurting themselves, but you know, it's there and um, you know, you, it's worth being aware of. Um, and it's a choice that you know you can fairly easily make with a, a change in the ammunition type that you're using um, to avoid if that's something that you're concerned about. Yeah, and and we know for for a fact that people are out there listening to this right now, and they're probably thinking, "I've eaten it all my life, and I'm fine." Okay, well, you can argue that, and that is your choice to make, and that's the beauty of this. You have the 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 uh, opportunity to make that choice, um, but usually, most people when they see the pictures. Like I say, they have, I I just did a shoot in uh, Wisconsin and in the, in a perfect situation, we do a three-part presentation. Then we go out to the field and we shoot and we have ballistics water barrels that we collect fragments in. We have ballistics gel and you can always tell, and we invite people out from all different uh, uh, walks of life and, and hunting experience. And you can usually tell when you're giving the presentation just by body language, which people that still, even with all the information we give them, they're not buying it. And I, and I knew this one gentleman 
I, I could sense that he was in that category. And really he's, he and people with that lack of understanding at the beginning, those are the people we really want to meet because we want them to challenge what we're telling them about the science. We want them to challenge and ask the hard questions. We want to have that conversation amongst ourselves as hunters so that when it goes public, we're informed and we appear informed and we can talk about it, you know, with some, some intelligence and knowledge, but we walked out to the range and shot. And when we opened up the top of the barrel of the side uh, of a barrel that we shoot lead with and the barrel we shoot copper with, I opened the top of that barrel and he looked in there and bless this guy's heart. He looked in there and said, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And I said, and everybody was taken aback because he said, I'm oh sorry. Gosh. And he said, I, I had no idea. Those fragments are really small. Of course I didn't see him. I'm so sorry. I was thinking this was all a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> and it was, so, and Leland can tell you, we experience this almost every time we do an in-person shoot. And he was just such a sweet guy. And he was so ready to defend, you know, hunters and defend our heritage. And, and he then realized that, you know what, we are too. That's why we're out there engaging with our fellow hunters to make sure that, that we aren't ignorant, to make sure we see it and we understand it. And it, that <laughs> those moments, man, that, that makes uh, for a lifetime. And all the other times we're frustrated when people claim we're anti-gunners. I mean, they should just see our, our safes and our, our uh, cabinets because they're just as full of <laughs> firearms and ammo as everybody else. And, and I tell people, I said, you know, yes, I'm, I'm in conservation and, and now I represent an entire organization, but I'm still the same hunting and angling redneck that I was born into. I uh, just have a lot of science to add to it and a lot of experience and uh, a lot of passion and optimism for how we as hunters and anglers can lead in conservation still today, even in this polarized state we find ourselves in. Yeah, I don't think if we didn't care about the future of hunting and, and our conservation heritage, we wouldn't keep doing the things the way we're doing them, right? I mean, there'd be no point and no benefit to me but that's what i'm here for is to try to promote that future and make sure that it happens um, and i really do think that you know this discussion and the choices around non-lead and how we share that with the public is one of the ways that we make sure that hunting remains strong into the future remains a valuable tradition because if we don't, then we start to lose that public support. And then we start to lose you know, our ability to go in the field and have these experiences and, and harvest this food. Um, I don't know. I get, I get very frustrated and cynical sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> well, just, just, just in Leland's defense, go onto our social media on uh, Facebook or Instagram and just look at the tongue lashings or keyboard lashings. We get there telling us to, you know, calling us commies and telling us to go back to California. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's pretty brutal. Uh, and again, that's just because it's really hard to have the full on presentation and real life experience of a ballistics demo on the computer. And so, you know, it's real easy for people to just tear us apart, but when they're with us in the, in the field and they see that demo, they, they realize very quickly, just like that sweet old man did that. Uh, yeah. He just, he just, he learned something new that day and it hit him hard and that's hard to do over the internet. Yeah. But even that said, so if a person is unable to make it to one of these demonstrations, there's some pretty compelling evidence that you, you both reference, like the, the radiographs of the ballistics gel. Are, are there videos? Do you guys have a YouTube channel or? We do. There's a non-lead partnership YouTube channel. Uh, there's not a lot of videos on there. There's a few um, associated with the online course I put together for Oregon. And then there's a film I worked on with the Nature Conservancy on the Zumwalt Prairie and the Oregon Backcountry Hunters and Anglers following a hunter through his um, bull elk hunt that he won out on the prairie. Um, which if you're going to watch any video about this is one that I would recommend mostly because it's um, it's kind of of an awesome uh, place. It's an awesome hunt. He harvested an amazing bull and it's got some of the conservation stuff 
along with it. Yeah, we're, we're trying to get better. We need, you know, mostly in the trips that we do, it's just Leland and myself. And um, <laughs> we're trying to amass more and more partners so that we can have more and more people out there across the nation representing these, um, whether it's doing videos or doing in, on the ground presentations and ballistics demos. Um, I think though Leland and I, um, I think we're our own worst enemies because every time we record something, we're like, oh, that, that wasn't perfect. And we just got to get over ourselves, I think, and just just get the content out there. Um, but we're so guarded because we want to make sure it's perfect. And, and sometimes that makes us our own worst enemies with just getting a lot of content out there. Not to mention, you know, this takes time and funding and um, yeah, not not to make a plug for it. But, you know. Uh, the Oregon Zoo and the Peregrine Fund and Institute for Wildlife Studies, um, we're the ones out there finding the funding to do this. And luckily, we have four state partners now, Arizona, Utah, Oregon, and Washington State. And they are contributing in some ways, massively contributing to getting information out there. But this is still in the formative stages. So we're just now starting to build it to where we have funding mechanisms to do more videos. And we just shot one on our East Coast tour that we did. And, and we had some help from some folks at Fish and Wildlife and TWS, and they were putting together uh, video segments, mostly for wildlife professionals. Um, but just a couple of weeks ago in, in Wisconsin, um, there was a field or a, t a TV crew there who actually had, I think it's called Deer Hunt Wisconsin. Um, and they filmed some of the ballistics demo. So um, that stuff's not cheap. And uh, thanks to the National Wildlife Federation and Wisconsin Wildlife Federation for ponying up and, and getting that film crew there. Um, that's what it takes. Yeah. I mean, as far as just good general media stuff, all the podcasts we've done and some of these videos and everything are available on the nonlitpartnership.org. There's a media page on that website where you can go through and listen to any of the 20 podcasts we've done over the last <laughs> two or three years. I wouldn't um, force that on anybody. Like that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll apologize in advance. But if you're really interested, I mean, it's going to be a lot of this same information, but, um, you know, all those different conversations, so you get little different bits and pieces for sure. You bet. I do have one kind of lingering, I don't know, I just almost want you guys to make a statement on it. I'm really taken by your stance on um, promoting this as like a voluntary use or a voluntary adoption of non-lead ammunition. And I'm just wondering if the two of you can talk a little bit about that very conscious choice and some of the success you've seen um, pushing it as a voluntary option rather than some alternatives. Go for it, Brian. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a challenging thing because a lot of folks listen to this, particularly those who don't hunt. And the first thing they say was, oh, if we just make it a law, it'll fix it. Um, but, you know, for us, the, the reality is that, you know, we're, we're trying to get the hunting community to move forward in a way that supports hunting, um, that supports conservation. And that requires buy-in from our partners who hunt from our colleagues who hunt, from our friends who hunt. Um, and, and we want hunters to help to lead that. And so that's really the impetus behind a lot of this. The other piece is, you know, laws are only effective as the people who choose to obey them. And I'm not saying that hunters are a bunch of lawbreakers or anything like that, but um, we also need to make sure that laws have support and, and if, you know, if they're going to, pass laws then what's the point if no one believes in them um, and we've seen success by asking for help from our from our fellow hunters um, you know chris has seen massive success in arizona on the kaibab plateau asking hunters to help you know over 80 percent participation in their voluntary programs for a decade now um, Wow. 87%. 87% annual. That is, that is phenomenal. And would you talk to people who are in law enforcement or in law and policy as a, as a profession? Um, they're blown away by that. And yes, it's only, you know, two to 3000 hunters, but the bottom line is we targeted, uh, I say we Arizona game and fish work to engage with their hunters. And that's the response they got. And you know what, that demonstrates that, that 
conservation ethic that hunters have, and that does preserve our hunting and conservation heritage. And that's what the partnership's all about. So we're not policymakers. Um, yes, we're scientists, and sometimes policymakers use the products of science in in making decisions. Um, but that's not the role we play. We provide information and share it in hopefully a, an effective way so that everybody can make informed decisions. But it comes down to the individual hunter. And, and that's something that's important, I think, is we talk about all these great things that have happened in our past in hunting, and they're usually really big things that happened, whether it's, uh, you know, the Lacey Act or things like that, that are part of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Well, here's an opportunity where an individual hunter in the field on their next hunt can make a contribution to improving ecosystem health, to maintaining our conservation ethic and our hunting heritage by simply choosing a non-lead bullet or removing the remains of an animal if it's small game or a coyote, just taking it out of the field. That too prevents exposure for scavenging wildlife. So I think that that explains more about, about how we relate to that. And, and we say statedly, we don't support litigation or legislation to solve this problem. And, and we don't participate in that. And, and that's pretty important. It feels so good, guys. And I'm so glad that we've um, had this conversation and presented this information to folks. I'm curious for any of our listeners that have tuned in to this episode and are like, wow, this is so interesting. I wonder, um, can we put a bow on this as far as like next steps for these folks to take if they are interested or considering adopting um, non-lead ammunition? Well, for an individual, I'd say, you know, first step is to to figure out um, what shoots best in their rifle. So it involves probably testing a few different types of non-lead ammunition um, or same with shotgun, right? Figure out which round um, works best with your firearm. And then it's basically from there, it's going in the field and, and putting it to use. For organizations, you know, if organizations want to be involved, you know, you can go on to the nonleadpartnership.org and uh, I think Chris and I's contact information is both on there. Given Chris's new responsibilities, it might be easier to contact <laughs> me at this point um, and, and touch base and we can figure out a, a time to talk and, and maybe share some more information or, or figure out a time for some presentations or one of these range days or something along those lines. Yeah, no, and and I'm and I'm right there uh, still in the. Uh, I always say that my optimism writes checks that I only cash ten percent of, but <laughs> I love getting out in the field um, and and talking with our fellow hunters, and and that is. Uh, yeah, we don't have a person that filled my role in the Peregrine Fund yet for that. So I'm still trying to do both, but definitely reach out to us. Like Leland said, let's arrange some field days. Um, it's best if we can get a, a consortium of hunting organizations and uh, if, if agency folks are interested, let's get as many groups together as we can and let's have another outing and we'll, we'll come out and, and shoot. And, you know, there's a lot more details that we didn't cover today that we could go on for hours um, talking about velocity and the relationship of, of mass of your bullet and velocity and fragmentation. Um, that'll be much easier to do in person as well. But um, yeah, let's just continue continue to have these conversations and, and identify opportunities where we can share it more broadly. And we thank you guys for sharing it um, with this podcast. Absolutely. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. Thank you both so much for your time. This has been really informative. And um, as Tana mentioned, we will link to all the resources mentioned here today and hope to have you guys out to Kansas in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do it during deer right season. I'll, I'll buy a, a tag. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, um, and remember, flat is a state All right. Until next time. Thanks, guys. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, 
The Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.